Well, good morning, everyone. I hope you are doing well on this Sunday morning. Uh, it's a little gloomy outside, but hopefully you're nice and cozy, warmed up. Um, some of you may be in your pajamas. Some of you may have gotten up early and gotten a shower and gotten all dressed up like I did. Hopefully you shaved better than I did today. Um, but we are excited to be gathering together for worship. This is actually our third week now, gathering for worship virtually. And so uh, it may have become now comfortable to you. You might be uh, enjoying yourselves. I hope many of you are having uh, wonderful times of family worship and uh, feel encouraged by the fact that we can still gather together amidst this um, difficult time. I know that many of us uh, may be wondering just how long we'll keep going on like this, how long we'll be doing this um, and gathering this way. And I wanted to let you know that this past week, uh, the session had a meeting. We met virtually to kind of discuss uh, where things have been. We had preliminarily made a decision to uh, postpone gathering uh, together um, back in March, kind of the middle of the month, all the way through the end of the month of March. And here we are nearing the end. and so we, we felt we needed to make another decision based on new facts and uh, kind of where things stand. And as you know, there's still a lot of restrictions on gatherings and whatnot. And so uh, the sad news is that until those restrictions lift, um, we do not have any freedom to, to gather together uh, as we would normally uh, desire, especially during the services of Holy Week. So that's Palm Sunday, Maundy Thursday, Good Friday, and Easter, which I know is uh, kind of a blow to us. We, we really look forward to those times and the kind of sanctity of those moments and, and how they are special in guiding us through reflection upon the life and love of Christ um, given for us on the cross and the power of His resurrection. And um, so it'll be a different season. I want to let you know that though we won't be gathering here at this place in the week, we will be producing some content uh, for those gatherings of Maundy Thursday and Good Friday. And Easter and the celebration of the resurrection can be just as powerful virtually as it is whenever we gather in person. It's not going to be the same, but that doesn't mean that we can't worship the Lord for His goodness and the truth of His promises and the surety that we have in the resurrection of Christ. So I just wanted to kind of alert you to that, alert you to the, the state that we are in, and uh, let you know that, you know, as restrictions lift, we will be making decisions based on the health of our congregation and the advice of uh, the counsel that we receive from the government as to when we might resume kind of meeting as normal, but this will be our new normal. And we do want to encourage you to take advantage of the offerings that we have during Holy Week. Use those as opportunities to share the good news with friends. Um, create virtual watch parties, if you will, uh, through Facebook or whatever means you can. Um, you can like and share our, our uh, services and use them as ways to, to encourage folks and, and give them, uh, you know, a, an influence of the truth of the gospel and the hope that we have in Christ in these difficult times. With that, I would like to uh, encourage us to prepare our hearts for worship by listening to this call to worship. This call to worship comes to us from Psalm 103. It was a, a psalm that is very close and, and dear to my heart. And I pray it's an encouragement to us as we gather for worship this morning. Praise the Lord, my soul. All my inmost being, praise His holy name. Praise the Lord, my soul, and forget not all His benefits who forgives all your sins and heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit and crowns you with love and compassion, 
who satisfies your desires with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. Amen. Let's join our voices together and sing about the basis of which the Lord's favor, this favor that Psalm 103 describes, is secured for us, that it is by nothing else but the blood of Jesus. Let's sing together. But the blood of Jesus What can make me whole again Nothing but the blood of Jesus Oh, precious is the flow That makes me white as snow No other fount I know Nothing but the blood of Jesus My pardon, this I see, nothing but the blood of Jesus. For my cleansing, this my plea, nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. Nothing but the blood of Jesus, not of good that I have done, nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow, no other fount I know, nothing but the blood of Jesus. is all my hope and peace, nothing but the blood of Jesus. This is all my righteousness, nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. But the blood of Jesus. And what a great reminder it is to know of the favor that we have with God through the blood of Christ. And it is on the promise of that favor and on the way that Christ's blood serves on our behalf that we can come before the Lord and confess our sins. And so I invite you to join me in this prayer of confession. Almighty God, even though we do not deserve your love or favor, you do not treat us as we deserve. You love us and you give us your grace through Christ. We mistreat you. We take your kindness for granted. 
Help us not to presume upon your love. But help us, Lord, this morning to carefully consider how far-reaching your love must be. To set upon us all these good things, despite the many and different ways that we have sinned against you. God, we pray that you would help us to present ourselves to you this morning asking for forgiveness. That you would help us to turn from our sinful patterns and to seek your mercy. That you would help our hearts be more open to you, whether you teach us through discipline or show us through blessing. Father, we ask that our condition would be one where we are not flattering ourselves, um, that we are not thinking that we are standing on a solid foundation or in any good place because of what we have done. But we might look to you as our kind and bountiful, bountiful Father who has loved us and given us all things in Christ. Forgive us, Lord, and grant us the understanding of the gospel. Grant us the power of this good news. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Our assurance also comes from Psalm 103, where the psalmist reminds us that the Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in love. He will not always accuse, nor will he harbor his anger forever. He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for us. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he knows how we are formed, and he remembers that we are dust. What a comfort it is to know that God knows how we were formed. He remembers how weak we are, and he offers his grace to us. He forgives us. He cleanses us and makes us new through Christ. Amen. Let's continue to contemplate that good news and respond to it as we listen to our anthem this morning. Typically, this would be the time when we give our offerings and our tithe to the Lord, and this would be a good time for us to continue that practice of, of uh, worshiping the Lord by honoring Him and His place in our life, that He is the giver of all good things, um, and the greatest of these is being our Father. breath of life comes sweeping through me touch my soul with life and power oh breath of life come cleanse renew me and mold me now to meet this hour and mold me now to meet this hour of God, come bend and break me. Humbly I confess my need. Then in 
your tenderness remake me revive restore for this i plead revive restore for this i of Christ once broken for me. Here I find my strength and rest, my broken contrite heart now comfort. And let your waiting child be blessed, and let your waiting child be breath of love, come breathe within me, renew my thoughts, my will, my heart, come love of Christ afresh to free me, transform my life in every part, transform my life in It is that time for our children's sermon, so hopefully, kids, uh, you're gathered around the screen, and um, what we're going to be talking about today is a question that uh, I printed in our uh, order of worship today, and the question is this, how do you pick a new king? How do you pick a new king? We've been talking every week in our uh, church services about how Israel needed a king, but they needed a special king. They needed a king that God would choose for them. They needed a king who was a person that God knew Israel needed. And so God sent Samuel out to find a new king. We're going to be learning a little bit about that in our children's sermon today. We remember that God had chosen Saul to be Israel's first king, but he, as we'll learn today, was not the type of king that Israel needed. They needed a different kind of king. So he sent Samuel out to find a new king. And so what types of things do we look for? Well, what do we look for in a new king? Would we look for a person who is strong? Do you look for a person who's big and powerful? Do you look for a person maybe that has a lot of money? So God sent Samuel to look for a new king, and he sent him out to a place called Bethlehem, to a man named Jesse who had a lot of sons. Now surely one of these sons had to be the new king. And so our story in 1 Samuel 16 says that, that uh, Jesse brought all his sons before Samuel one by one. And when they came, Samuel looked on a man named Eliab, and he thought to himself, surely this is the king that God has chosen. This guy looks like king material. But our Bibles tell us something really interesting. That the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature because I have rejected him. 
For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. So Samuel was to find not the person who looked like a king, but the person with a heart like a king. Well, the story continues, and all these sons of Jesse were coming before Samuel, and none of them were chosen. And so Samuel asked Jesse, is this all of your sons? Are there any others? And Jesse says, well, there is one more, David, and he's the youngest son. He's out in the fields with the sheep. And Samuel said, bring him to me. And it turns out, when David came before Samuel, that God said, this is the new king. Now, nobody would have thought that David was the right choice for a king. He was the youngest. He probably wasn't very big. So why would he be a good king? It's because God sought a king that would love him and would listen to him. That was the most important thing that a king would have uh, in Israel. And so something that sometimes we forget when we think about David and we think about this story is that David is actually related to Jesus. Did you know that? Jesus is actually the great, 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 great grandson of David. That's a lot of greats. And just like David, Jesus would love God. In fact, he would love God more than anyone ever would. Just like David was the king that Israel needed, Jesus lived to be the king that all of God's people needed. But he didn't really look much like a king. He didn't really act much like a king. And we'll talk and learn more about that next week. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and how it teaches us what matters most to you. And we pray, Father, for all the children of our church, in fact, for all the members, Lord, that you would cultivate in us a heart like David, that we would have a heart even like Jesus, a heart that loves you, a heart that wants to be your delight, that wants to please you and honor you. And so we pray that you would help us all to have a heart like that and grow to be more like Jesus. And Lord, we pray that you would help us all to look to Jesus and know how he has pleased you for all the times when we don't. And Father, as we continue to come under your word and open up your scriptures, as you continue to speak to us, we pray that your word would penetrate our hearts, that you would guide us into your truth, that you would shape and fashion us in the likeness of Christ. We pray that you would bless this reading of your word. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this week we are in um, our final week going through 1 Samuel. And we're going to be looking again, uh, and we've been looking at Israel's struggles with kingship. We'll be looking this week at 1 Samuel 15. So if you have your Bibles with you, I encourage you to go ahead and turn there. While you're turning there, I just want to uh, make some comments about where we're be heading with our series from here on out. Next week, we'll pick up our study by looking at Jesus' entrance into Jerusalem. Um, as many were welcoming him like a king, 
which we celebrate on uh, Palm Sunday. That's Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem, and that's where we'll be uh, looking next week. It's good for us to remember that over the weeks we've seen through this series, Israel wrestle with the fact that God was to be their king. He was to be their provider and protector, the one who established them, the one who gave them their culture and established the form of justice uh, among them. He's essentially the one that made them a nation. But we've seen week after week Israel struggle with this over and over again. Israel finally got what they wanted, uh, as we saw. They finally got a king like all the other nations, but they did not really get what they needed. We see that they were given a king like all the other nations. King Saul, he's powerful, he's handsome, he's a giant of a guy. He really looked the part. But as we saw last week, Saul has some serious weaknesses. Saul is weak in the same ways that Israel was weak. And that turns out to be a dangerous combination for Israel and their kings. Last week we saw how fear weakened both Saul and Israel to compromise in their obedience. Israel was fearful of the enormous army of the Philistines and they began to scatter and hide. They didn't trust that God had their backs. And as Israel is fleeing in fear, Saul's fear of losing his army begins to kick in. Eventually Saul decides to try securing God's favor by offering a sacrifice. But he demonstrates in doing that that He's not interested in listening to God's instruction and trusting that God will come through for him. He demonstrates he has no interest in listening to that. Instead, he just wants to try to procure God's favor, to try to create a sense of security, and so he takes a shortcut. And because of his weakness, Samuel announces that God has rejected Saul's dynasty, that if he would have listened to God, Saul's kingdom and his glory would have lasted for generations. His sons and his sons' sons would have reigned on the throne, but because he would not listen to God, that dynasty would end with him. It would be a one-man dynasty. This week we'll see once again the sins that we saw hinted at in chapter 13, only they'll be appearing more clearly in our passage today. Our passage begins with a mission. Samuel gives Saul instructions to destroy a people called the Amalekites. Now, who were the Amalekites? They were a nomadic tribe that descended from Esau, and they lived down in the area of the wilderness uh, near the Negev. And you might remember the story where Moses uh, was in the wilderness, and there was a battle between Israel and the Amalekites. And it was this story where whenever Moses would raise his hands, Israel would have victory. But when Moses' hands began to droop, the, the uh, momentum began to favor the side of the Amalekites. And so Joshua and Caleb stand up and they hold Moses' hands up so that Israel gets the victory. Well, now many centuries later, God has given Saul orders to bring justice against this people, essentially to give them a taste of their own medicine. And so just like the Amalekites had treated Israel and treated so many people, nothing was to be left of them. Saul was supposed to go in and to destroy them. All their possessions, their livestock, this people was to be erased. But Saul and his people, as they attacked the Amalekites, they made a few exceptions. Saul spares the king, King Agag, and takes him into his custody. And they also spare the best of the sheep and the oxen and the fattened calves and the lambs. All that was good 
they would not utterly destroy those things. But anything that was despised and worthless, they devoted those things to destruction. Let's pick up the story uh, in chapter 15, verse 10. The word of the Lord came to Samuel and said, I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And Samuel was angry, and he cried to the Lord all night. And Samuel rose early to meet Saul in the morning. It was told to Samuel, Saul came to Carmel, and behold, he set up a monument for himself, and turned and passed on and went down to Gilgal. And Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed be you to the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. And Samuel said, What then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen that I hear? Saul said, Well, they have brought them from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and of the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God, and the rest we have devoted to destruction. And Samuel said to Saul, Stop. I will tell you what the Lord has said to me this night. And he said to him, Speak. And Samuel said, Though you are little in your own eyes, are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel. And the Lord sent you on a mission and said, Go and devote to destruction the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? And Saul said to Samuel, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I've gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me. And I brought Agag, the king of Amalek, and I've devoted the Amalekites to destruction. But the people took of the spoil, the sheep and the oxen, the best of the things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. Samuel said, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifice as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination, and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. The story continues and ends with even more sadness. Saul, realizing now how much his sin has cost him, begins to plead for Samuel's help, but he still doesn't take full responsibility. He's pleading for Samuel's help, and he says, I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words, because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Samuel refuses Saul's request, and as he does and turns from Saul, Saul grabs for Samuel's robe, and the fabric tears. Samuel says, Just as the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day, he has given it to the neighbor of yours, one who is better than you. Also, the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret, for he's not a man that he should have regret. Saul finally says, I have sinned. Honor me now before the elders of my people, before Israel, and return with me that I may bow before the Lord your God. 
And Samuel finally, by this point, after Saul has been brought so low, turned back after Saul, and Saul bowed before the Lord. In our passage this morning, we see a very clear picture of Saul's sin. And this week kind of feels a little strange because last week we spent a lot of time looking at Saul's sin and looking at what matters most to God and looking at the hope of the promise. And in some ways, this story follows the same pattern. And so in some ways, it might sound like very much the same sermon. But God's Word is progressive in its revelation. And as we're reading in these events in Saul's life, and we saw that Saul's lack of obedience and his reaction to take shortcuts through fear led to the end of his potential dynasty as Israel's king, we see now that even Saul's position as king will come to an end prematurely because of his disobedience. And so, spending time and looking at this passage and looking at Saul's sin in some detail, um, it's, it's kind of like peeling back layers of an onion to find out what's in the middle. And so, we're, we're spending another week kind of looking at this angle of this weakness that was in Saul. And so, as we look at this passage, it very clearly highlights for us Saul's sin and his failure. But what exactly is Saul's sin? You know, as we read, the passage seems to emphasize that Saul was disobedient, that he did not listen to the instructions that God gave him. And we can tend to think of sin as being the offense. You know, there's this kind of transgression, a rule that we have broken. You know, there's a commandment that has not been kept. But sin is a little bit more like an onion. There are always sins beneath the sin. And in our passage, we can see that there are layers that are uh, laid out for us. first layer that we see is Saul's disobedience. Saul was told to destroy everything, but he didn't. He kept the king alive and uh, any animal that was pleasing to the eye. We see that Saul did not fully obey what God had told him to do. But that leads us to uh, layer two. We also see Saul's insecurity and his, his lust come out in this passage. Why did Saul and Israel choose not to obey the word of the Lord? It's because they saw that they could have something that they didn't already have. There was an insecurity or a perceived weakness, and they saw an opportunity where they could fill that void. So Saul decided to take the Amalekite king captive and not kill him. Why? Well, because in ancient times, if you were a really great king and you had a great empire, you had rule and reign over other kings. Essentially, you would become a king of kings. And Saul saw an opportunity for this. He saw an opportunity for his power to be strengthened. He saw an opportunity to uh, establish his kingdom. People would hear of Saul, king of Israel, who now had kings in his service, kings in his custody. Saul had a lust for glory and power. He wanted to secure his name as a great king. He wanted to keep the favor and the respect of the people. This is why we read as Samuel was searching for Saul, he had set up a memorial after the battle in his honor. And Samuel's words in verse 17 reveal to us this insecurity he says, though you are little in your own eyes, 
Those words, I don't know if they strike you as they struck me. It seems like Saul was always wrestling with his self-image. He was always insecure of his calling as king. And so he saw in this battle an opportunity to make a name for himself. He feared losing the grip on his kingship, and he was desperate to keep it intact. And this is the same reason why he allowed Israel to plunder the best of the Amalekite animals. We have to remember that Israel was not a nation with great wealth, and so this was an opportunity for Saul to really pump up his public opinion. Not only would he have victory, but now the victor would share the spoils with Israel. Well, an onion usually has more than two layers, and so does Saul's sin. The third layer that we see is we begin to see Saul's pride appear in this passage. Saul greets Samuel, and he seems to be very proud with what he has accomplished. In his mind, he feels justified in what he has done. He comes uh, to Samuel, and this is seen so clearly as he greets Samuel. He's boasting in his obedience. He says, blessed be to you. And then he says, for I have fulfilled what the Lord has asked me to do. He says, I've been victorious. I've completed the task. And Samuel says, then why do I hear sheep and cows? At that moment, Saul begins to justify by saying that the animals were going to be used for a great celebration. It's as if he's saying, you know, Samuel, we decided to take these spoils and we're going to hold a big worship service. We're actually going to ask if you could preach for it, um, but we're going to hold this big worship service and we're going to celebrate this victory and we're going to sacrifice all these animals and feast and enjoy this great victory that we have received. Don't think for a moment that this was going to be a God-centered worship service. Nothing in Saul's actions has been God-centered. God has been an accessory in Saul's view. It's been Saul focused with a little bit of God on the side. Just enough God to make it okay. Which leads us to the last layer that I would direct us to see in this passage this morning, which is that this passage also highlights the layer of sin in Saul's unbelief. It's very subtle, but the reality is that all sin at its core stems from unbelief. Whether it's a tinge of doubt or even a wrong belief about who God is and how he calls us to live. And this was true even for the first sin. You know, as Adam and Eve ate of the fruit that was forbidden in the garden, what led them to that point? They were tempted to doubt. You know, the serpent appears to, to Eve and he says, did God really say? He begins introducing doubt and the serpent works that angle in order to get Adam and Eve to doubt just enough that they would take the plunge. Just enough that they would feel that they could act outside of what God had called them to do. And Saul is prone to that same weakness and it's highlighted here for us. And I was struck as I was studying this passage by the fact that so many times when, God spe or when Saul speaks of God in this passage with Samuel, he always says, the Lord your God. It's always this second person pronoun. It's never that the Lord is our God. You know, that Saul and Samuel both share this connection to the Lord. It's always stated, your God. This is very interesting. The only other time that we see this language of this, this uh, 
second person singular being used, this language of the Lord your God in English is really in Exodus as Moses is speaking to Israel. Now Moses is making the case that the God is the God of each of you, all you people, not just corporately, but as individuals. He is your God. God is trying to personally be your king. That was the case that Moses was making. But in this case, it doesn't seem like Saul sees God as his God. Verse 15, he says that the people spared the best of the sheep and the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God, Samuel. In verse 21, again, we were just doing that to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. And then in verse 30, when he's pleading for Samuel to return with him, he says that I may bow down before the Lord your God. With each of these statements, Saul is referencing his actions toward God through Samuel's connection and never his own. Saul's use of the Lord your God might be showing us that God was not his God, that God was not personal to him, that he obeyed out of an obligation but not out of love. It's like God was an accessory to Saul. It's like he knew that God had made him king, but he never really knew what that meant. He never really understood the great favor that he had, the great potential that there was. Instead of trying to please God, Saul seemed to always be trying to appease God. And the great irony of this passage is that Saul is always trying to secure his kingship through his own actions, and by doing so, he loses it kind of reminds me of Jesus' words in Matthew, that anyone who tries to keep his life will lose it, but anyone who loses his life for my sake will find it. That principle seems to ring true as we look at Saul. Saul was seeking to preserve his glory, not understanding the glory that could be had as the king of Israel if he only would have a heart for the Lord. Samuel's words in, in verse 17 about Though you are little in your own eyes, are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? It's kind of revealing to us that Saul was always deceiving himself. He convinced himself that to be Israel's king, he needed to make a name for himself. He had convinced himself that if he did most of what God asked, he could have God give him his favor over and over again. He thought that he convinced himself that if he could just give God kudos after a victory, God would be happy with his performance. But how much obedience does it take to be Israel's king? How much obedience does it take to be the king that God's people need? Samuel raises the question, has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen better than the fat of rams. You see, God did not want the king's sacrifices. God wanted the king's heart. And because God never occupied the throne of Saul's heart, Saul would lose the throne in Israel. Even though Saul was 80% obedient, he was just as wrong as if he never obeyed at all. Saul's sin made him unfit to be Israel's king. And because of this, Samuel delivers the judgment to Saul in verse 28. He says, The kingdom has torn, been torn from you. The Lord has torn it from your hands this day and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. 
The passage ends by Saul clutching on this robe and pleading for his place as king. And just like the fabric tears from the robe, it's this very tangible and visible sign of the kingship being torn from his grasp. Saul did not understand what God wanted from Israel's king. God's people need a king who is better than Saul. As we heard in the children's sermon, David would be the man that God chose to rule after Saul, a man described as one after God's own heart. God's people needed a king who did not have the same weaknesses as the people. God's people needed a king whose heart wasn't bound in the same way that their heart was, a king who delighted in God, not just sought to appease him. But even David would not fulfill God's high calling of being a king that Israel needed. Even David would fall short and be undone by his own sin, just as Saul was. But what separates Saul and David is that Saul didn't see that he needed a king that was better than him. He did not understand the low place that he was really in. See, after David's sin, David wrote these words in Psalm 51. He says, You will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God, the things that really please God, are a broken spirit and a broken and contrite heart. That's what the Lord does not despise. You see, unlike Saul, David realized how his heart made him unfit to be the king. Unlike Saul, David knew that sacrifices would not bring delight or favor in God's eyes, only admitting the low place where David found himself in need of God's mercy. What's my point in highlighting all of this and focusing on Saul's sin so much? Why do we revisit this highlight reel in such depth? The point that I want to share with us and encourage us with this morning is that sin is never just breaking a rule. The nature and the patterns of sin are always stem from deeper issues. They're always symptoms at the core of our being that are difficult for us to see. There are always sins underneath the sin. And to others, they might read just like this story. They might be plain as day, but many of us are just like Saul. Many of us are in this dangerous position where we're trying to appease God rather than please God. Many of us deceive ourselves. We're given 80 and 90 and 99% of our obedience thinking that God is satisfied with us, that we are standing in some sort of good standing because we are holding up our end of the bargain. Many times we can be like Saul and we justify ourselves. We sanctify our actions. We baptize them with good purpose. We make defense for why we're doing such things. That's what separates us from God. That's the core of the sin. It's the root of unbelief. It's that tinge of doubt where we think we can get what we want, believing that God will be happy with what we decide to give Him, believing that most of our obedience is enough. And because this is the case, because that is the reality of the situation we find ourselves in, my encouragement for us is to be in prayer and pray that God speaks to us like he spoke to Saul through Samuel, revealing the sins beneath the sins until there is nothing that remains. 
in what areas of your life are you 80 or 90% obedient? You know, what are those things that you do that you spin positive like Saul? That you're baptizing and sanctifying? What insecurities or desires or unbeliefs lead us to try to appease God with our actions? Where are those secret sins of worry and doubt that we just kind of think are okay? Where are those sins that you think, you know, God owes me this or he wouldn't ask that of me? What are those things in your role as a parent or as a spouse or as a Christian? What are they? Pray that the Holy Spirit would reveal them to us like Samuel revealed them to Saul. Pray that the Spirit would pin us down like it did David. That God would corner us and not relent, that he would reveal the depth of our sin to us, helping us to see how low we truly are so that we can see that it is God who makes us all that we are. It appears that Saul never understood that. The question that I raised for us this morning is, do we? He saw how much his sin cost him. He lost the kingdom, and it grieved his heart that he lost all of that. But he never seemed to understand what God asked of him. You see, while we pray for God to reveal our sin to us, we can also look at this passage and praise God that he has raised up the king that we need. We can praise God for the king that he has chosen, a king who is better than us, a king who offered himself and his obedience as a perfect sacrifice for all of our disobedience. I love how the author of Hebrews puts it in Hebrews chapter 10. He says, Therefore, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me. With burnt offerings and sin offerings you were not pleased. Then I said, Here I am. It is written about me in the scroll. I have come to do your will, my God. The author of Hebrews says, And by that will we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. What good news it is that we have God's favor. Though we are nothing, we are nothing in our eyes that we have God's favor and he's given it to us because of the love which our king has loved him and us with his whole heart. Would you join me in prayer? Father, we ask that you would be working through your spirit. Lord, only you know the ways in which we wrestle with trying to prove to ourselves that we're okay. You only know the ways, Father, better than any of us, the ways that we deceive ourselves into thinking that we're all right, that we've got good standing. You know the ways in which we try to spin positive. And Father, I pray that you would help us to see where it is that we find our favor and our standing. Lord, help us not to approach you as Saul did, Help us not to be hard-hearted and think that, that we could appease you, that we could win your favor, that we could spin positive things and still glory in ourselves. Lord, help us to have a heart more like David. One who, you know, even though he did so many things that were good, even when he was undone by his sin, 
He knew the only place he could stand was before the mercy of God with a broken and contrite heart. Father, help us to look to Christ and to praise you and worship you for the good things that we have secured through his act as our king. We thank you that you look upon him and shower us with love. That we can stand in our low place and be accepted and be cherished and be strengthened because of the obedience he has rendered to you on our behalf. Lord, help us to repent and to turn from these ways so that we might walk in newness of life, enjoying the safe place that it is and coming under our King, the King that we need, King Jesus. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. At this time, I want to invite Pastor Terrence to lead us in a time of prayers of intercession. pray together. May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us. Our Father and our God, we come to you with our cares, our concerns, and with our needs. No one else knows us like you know us. No one else is as acquainted with our daily lives our inner thoughts, and who we are individually and collectively like you. Your throne of grace is our dwelling place these days, for only you can meet our every need. Father, be gracious to us and to our neighbors. We confess that you have our full attention. Father, pour out your mercy on your people on our neighbors, on the country, on the nations of the world. People need work. People need provision. People need healing. People need purpose. People ultimately need to be delivered out of the bondage to sin and rebellion to you. And they need to be brought into union, into intimate communion with Jesus Christ. We plead your blessing for those who have lost jobs and businesses. Father, all of our provision comes from you. Meet the needs of the masses during these days, we pray. Be our shepherd, O Lord. Father, we pause to thank you for the lives of our sisters in Christ, Jale Anisi and Astrid Ohanian. You called them into your glorious presence this very week. Their labors on this side of eternity are done. Lord, but eternity for these two sisters has just begun. We ask, O oh God, your great comfort, your precious comfort on their family and their friends. The Scripture, Psalm 67, says that your way may be known on earth your saving power among all nations. In a world where the name of God has been treated irreverently, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, make your name known. In these days, the Word of God is desperately needed, Lord. Press your church 
in all denominations to read and study and meditate on the Scriptures and to pray. During these days, fill your people with the Word of God. Then, as in the time of the first century church, cause your Word, O God, to spread among the neighborhoods, the towns, the states, the countries, and the continents. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. We ask you for light, the light of your word to convince, convict, and transform millions and millions of people all over the world to become worshipers of the triune God. Cause the people to praise you, Lord, through your word being shared and taught and preached in the power of the Holy Spirit. May we not grieve, Holy Spirit. May we humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God and through grace, grace that you shower so mercifully upon us. Obey your commands. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy, for you judge the peoples with equity and guide the nations upon earth. The nations are down these days due to this rampant virus. Father God, through this epidemic, we ask you to reveal Christ to the nations, that they may be glad and sing for joy. Use your missionaries and global workers all over the world, Lord, this very day. Father, mercifully let the nations know that you are the judge and you are the guide of all the nations past, present, and future. Draw the nations. Draw a people from every tribe and tongue and nation to Jesus Christ. Use Church of the Atonement in your mission, we pray. Work through Church of the Atonement this week in all of our respective areas, we pray. And we ask all these in the mighty name of our King, Savior, and Brother Jesus Christ the Lord. Amen. Brothers and sisters, let's sing together right where you are, nothing without you. strength to praise you near enough for I have nothing I have nothing without you and take my voice pour it out let it sing the songs of mercy I have found For I have nothing, I have nothing without you I have 
nothing without you. Take my body, build it up. May it be broken as an offering of love. For I have nothing, I have nothing without you. Let it glorify all that you are worth For I am nothing, I am nothing without you What a great prayer and praise we can offer to the Lord. We are nothing without Him. As we uh, conclude our service today, I want to thank you all for gathering with us. We look forward to gathering for Palm Sunday virtually and celebrating the triumphal entry of the King, King Jesus. As you go out about your ministry and your work and your lives this week, may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God the Father, and the fellowship of of the Holy Spirit be with you now and always. Amen. Mm -hmm.